Good morning, one and all. Very good to see you. Uh, we do like to keep everyone on their toes every so often, hence why we'll switch things from one sense to the other. Uh, as Gus said, we will kind of get to a moment, uh, I hope, towards the end of this morning, where we uh, get back into just centering ourselves around God. And I want to say, actually, above and in everything else, actually, God, you're worthy of our attention and worthy of our hearts and worthy of our worship. Uh, But before we get there, I just wanted to kind of set the scene a little bit. If you weren't around last week, I would encourage you to listen to last week's talk because it will just enable you to just kind of be part of the journey of what we're on as we're looking at this incredible book of uh, called Ephesians, a letter written uh, to a church in Ephesus and the surrounding area. And it'll just help you kind of catch up to where we are. But what we've entitled this series, we tend to give each series that we're uh, looking at a name in order that it gives us something to hook everything on. And we've entitled this series uh, Crafted. And we've called it Crafted because the whole element of crafting something involves something of the individual who's creating that object or thing. And it is something they don't do coldly, but invest something of themselves. They lovingly look after it. They're lovingly investing in it. But in it, what they're crafting ultimately is something they're making for purpose. And so what we're saying is as we look through this letter of Ephesians, we're going to discover that it is a letter that has been crafted, something that has been lovingly made for purpose. But more than that, what we're hoping is that we're going to get through the end of this series and through week on week, we're going to discover that each and every one of us has been lovingly made for purpose, has been crafted, crafted by God. And maybe you've come this morning thinking, well, I'm just on a journey of trying to discover if there is a God and if there is whether he wants anything to do with me. Well, for you, you kind of get to listen just for a moment. And for you, I just say, God loves you. And God loves you so much that he wants to craft a life that you could not even imagine how good it could be. And for many of us in this room, we've known what it is through centering our lives around Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to be crafted by God. And as we look through this letter, it's going to cause us to keep growing in our understanding that we are those that are lovingly made for purpose. And whilst we do this journey, what we've done is we've... um, prepared a resource uh, that we're hoping isn't kind of a repeat of what's shared on a Sunday morning, but rather is something that can enable and strengthen us in our uh, ongoing uh, devotion as followers of Jesus. And that's a book called Comment Not Commentary. And we gave these away last week. They're literally there, not as fodder for the chairs, but hopefully stuff that we can take home and actually for it to impact and shape how we then live our lives uh, in whatever rhythm we are, uh, want. It breaks down the whole of uh, the book of Ephesians into 39 parts using the uh, message uh, interpretation of the Bible as a way of uh, kind of bringing access immediately to what's written And in it, it then gives just a brief comment about what you've uh, read, a a picture to look at that kind of reveals something, and then some questions uh, to think through. I promise you, it can be worked at a rhythm that works best for you. Uh, I would encourage you not to race through it. It could be read in about 15, 20 minutes, but that's not the point. The point is you get a section that you can read in about three minutes, and then take as long as you want to to then apply. And I'd really encourage you to take each part as a part and not move on to the next until you kind of feel like you've worked through the questions at the end. And so if you weren't here last week and you didn't get one, I wonder if you could do a bold thing, just because we want to give you something, is if you could put your hand up and then we'll ensure that whilst your hands are raised that you'll get a book given out now. Um, So you will need to keep your hand up, and I'm sorry about that, you'll feel embarrassed, you think, but everyone's looking at me, don't worry, you get something. And just look around, there's other people with their hands up as well, so don't worry about it. I could even help someone, there you go, Joseph, you can have my book, it's just there. Um, In it, there's 
A sense of as we come then uh, this morning, the danger is what happened last week is once you get given something is you now look at it. And you think, okay, I'm not going to bother listening anymore. I'm just going to look at this. That's not the point of this. What we say is once you've got a book, uh, stick it in your bag, stick it under your chair. Maybe if you feel even more tempted, stick it under your bottom. And then you'll refrain from looking at that. As what I want to do now is kind of pick up where we left off last week. If you're around last week, you'll know that Paul kind of starts this letter off with a reminder, a reminder of who he is, but more than that, who we are, and gets us to understand something of our identity and our purpose. And it's from that place of having got us to understand, just literally in the opening comments of something of our identity and purpose, we now get to this moment. I'm going to read verses 3 to 14 in a moment, but in this point, What Paul does is he he suddenly gets to this realization that actually in understanding who we are and what we're about, the only place it can lead us to, the only place it leads him to, is praise. And what I'm hoping is this morning is we're going to get to this point, hopefully by the time I shut up, of realizing, hopefully with God's help, because I promise you my words won't be enough, that actually we have been uniquely crafted to praise. And then my hope is at the end of me sharing what Paul has written, that's all I'm doing, I'm just standing on his shoulder saying, hey, this is, look at what he says, is that we're able to get to this point of realizing that God above anything else that we can give our time, attention, our sight, our looks, our thoughts to, is worthy of our praise more than anything else, however good it might be. And then in it, what it will then do is pour out of us what praise always does, is praise doesn't then sit within. It always has to have an outworking. We always get to this point where praise ultimately means that we have to share it. Share it to the one that we're wanting to give praise to. So we've even seen that modelled here this morning. So when uh, Gus mentioned Julia and said we want to thank her for what her and her team do week in, week out by making sure there's PowerPoint slides that have words on and following whatever rambles I might be saying, is that in that moment, it was a moment of praising her and her team. So it had to be spoken. It wasn't enough for Gus just to think, I think, oh, yeah, that'd be good. It had to be spoken, shared with the one that's being praised. And that can be both in word and action. But also, it's not only one that, that's spoken to them, it's also one that we then not only share with the individual, we then can't help but share with others. There's that praise that, that we get to saying, actually, as Gus modeled, that it isn't enough to just contain it and speak it individually to that person. We want to tell others about what they do. And the more and more marvellous of something that we see, the more we want to share it with others. So with that in mind, I want us to get straight into Ephesians 1 verse 3. It says this, this is what Paul writes. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ, in accordance with his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavishes on us continue with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ you see in him 
we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to put off hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked with him, with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Should we just worship now? I don't know if I need to share. Well, Paul in this moment, in the original Greek, it was literally just one sentence, no uh, commas, no full stops, nothing. It was just literally just this one sentence with no pause for breath. It was like this cascade that as Paul has just written and said, this is who I am, this is who we are. He then can't help but say, but let's just remember who God is. And this cascade comes out of him. He's saying, well, we have to praise God. Why? Because of everything that he's given us. And it's like commentators try to contemplate what it's like, and it becomes this moment like a snowball in a cartoon, where you see at the top of the hill and someone kind of roll it, and suddenly it gathers momentum as it goes down the hill, and it becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. and So we get to the end and think, what, from that small beginning, we've got to that? And we find that in the pace of what Paul is sharing, it isn't like a, a list in order. It's rather just these things that are coming to mind. And as it does, it just causes us to grasp how wide and how big and how long and deep is the love of God to each of us. Another commentator says it's a bit like a kaleidoscope. Do you remember if you remember those as a kid? You can still get them. They're, they're the coolest things ever where you get this little tube that you look at and there's these colored beads or pattern at the end. And as you twist it, the pattern and the colors keep changing. It's like Paul saying, well, what God has given us. Once we've centered our life on Jesus' life, death and resurrection, it's just unbelievably beautiful. In actual fact, we can keep saying we look at it in one sense and think, oh, that's what it is. But then the more and more we gaze at it, the more and more we realize there's so many diverse colors and depths to what we're looking at. And it's with that in mind that Paul says, this verse we could rush on, and the danger is we could. And we will look at this over the next few couple of weeks, that we will look at these amazing statements of how God has now defined us or yearns to define us as we center our life around him. But if we rush to that, if we rush to verse 4 through to 13, we miss the point of where Paul had started. What he wants to do isn't to just rush and say, look, remember this about yourself, but rather to get us to a point of saying, remember who this God is. Remember how worthy he is of our praise. See, Paul in this moment, having set out who we are, having set out who he is in the opening moment, rushes to who God is and calls us to praise. So he does. He calls us to praise. Verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. He can't contain himself. He said, look, when we fully understand everything we have in God, we can't help but praise him. You see, there are many different things you and I can give our praise to, many good things. Maybe the praise of achievements, achievements academically, achievements in sporting arenas. Might be the achievements in beauty. Not literally, you look at someone, though we do praise people, don't we? You think, God, you made a bit of an effort to come to church this morning. You look very nice. I often get that said about me. 
What that says about the rest of the week, I don't know. But, but it can not only be in the beauty of that, but also in the beauty of something someone's created. It might be a piece of art. It might be a, the piece of music. And then we hear it and we can't help but praise it and think, this is amazing. We praise the one who's made it. We then can't help but do what I say. We can't help but share it with others and say, you've got to listen to this. So it could be beauty. It might be that we praise someone just simply because we love them. And we just can't help ourselves. We just think, well, I really love you and I, I can't help but just keep praising you because I love you. Or maybe it's because we want them to know that we love them. There's a hint for some of us that we want them to know that we love them. So we think, oh, we like them or we're interested. And so we think, I know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to praise them. That's a good place to start. It's also a good place to continue for those of us who are in loving relationships. But in it, Paul says there's these things that we can praise that are good. All of those things I've spelled out aren't bad or, or evil. They're actually good things to praise. But in it, when there's this moment of seeing that there's something good, there's this moment that Paul wants us to understand and say, look, however good these things are, they're not this good. There's an advert at the moment on the television. I'm not kind of saying that this advert is the be-all and end-all. I'm not saying that I think that what it's advertising is really good. I'm indifferent to what it's advertising. I recognize that the thing it's advertising can have harm on individuals. There's the caveat. But the advert goes like this, that someone seeks to do an unbelievable exploit on something very trivial. And so the one advert I've seen is a guy's chips get nicked by a seagull. And then you watch this guy go over this amazing kind of series of events to get back his chips off this flying seagull in order that he can be deemed worthy to drink the drink that this advert is advertising. And at the very last hurdle, whilst he's done all of these amazing things, suddenly we find that he gets the chips, but he's now on a boat destined to the sea to go fishing. And his mate calls from the shore in total arrogance with his glass in hand saying, it's good, but it's not that good. Paul isn't in that moment of arrogance, but I think there's a statement that is in there that I want us to get hold of in terms of, all we're going to look at this morning in respect to everything we see in God is there are so many things that take our attention, cause us to think this is praiseworthy. And they are good. Some of them are really good. But actually, when we see them in light of how good God is, what we're going to see is actually they're good, but they're not that good. And my hope is that we'll then say, actually, if God is that good... I want to continuously shape my life up to be one who's continuously looking to praise him in everything I say and everything I do and everything I share. So what Paul does is he says, well, actually, this is a call to praise, but it's a call to praise one who is the object of our praise. Very straightforward, but he rushes straight in there. He says, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who's blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. See, Paul wants us to understand that the object of our praise is God. But in saying that, it can be just like, well, that's a bit obvious, isn't it? Of course it's God, because we're talking about the Bible, and of course it's going to be about God. But Paul, even in this moment, jams it packed full of an unbelievable amount. 
If you like, it's a sandwich where you've gone to Subway and you get to the salad bar and you just say, everything. <laughs> they look and you think, what, really? Every, everything. Well, all the sauces as well? Everything. <laughs> that's what Paul does in this verse. He just jams it with everything. And he says, look, God, that's who the object of our praise is to be God. And he says, who is this God? He's not a God that we don't know. It's a God that we do know. It's a God that we know everything about. It's a God that is three in one. A God that is Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he says, well, who is this God that we're to, who's to be the object of our praise? Well, he's the Father. He's the source and the origin of everything that we get to enjoy and live in. So what he says is, he who's blessed us. Isn't it something that we've kind of concocted and thought, oh, let's make this happen? No, it says, oh, no, the origin of everything that we're going to go on to look at, everything that we can know within our life is, is God the Father. And he says, well, it's not only God the Father who's the object, it's also the Son, Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who's brought about everything that we get to enjoy. The agency of everything that we get to enjoy is through Jesus. Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. The fact that we're now in Jesus, forever, like hidden within who he is identified within him. So this, this is the object. It's one who is the source of all. But not only the source of it, also the, kind of, the, the one who can then apply everything. The one who's able to then deliver on everything that we've needed. She's the source of all. She's also the way for it all to happen. And he says, but he's not only the Father, the Son, he's also the Spirit. He then uses this phrase, there's spiritual blessings. Now in that, we're going to unpack that in a moment. But part of what Paul is expressing here in saying it's spiritual blessings, saying it is of the Spirit. Everything you and I get to enjoy through centering our life on Jesus is marked, is encompassed by the Spirit. Who is the one within the Godhead who's seeking to bring alive our experience of our knowledge and understanding of everything that Jesus has achieved for us, everything that was bought and orchestrated by the Father. Paul wants us to understand that when it comes to God, we're not talking to one who seems distant and abstract. We're actually talking to one who is, has a face, has a name, who is Father, Son, and Spirit, who is actively, out of love, working for our good. That's the object of our praise. That's the one who's seeking and yearning for us to know how good he is in order that we can know how good a life we can know. He's wanting our attention. Because as we give it, we suddenly realize everything we have in him. Because Paul wants us to understand that it's not only that we have this object of praise. It's also that out of that object of praise, who is God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we have a reason to praise that we have a reason to praise. That Paul says, you know, we're, we're those that have been blessed with every blessing. That's our reason for praise. He says, it isn't like a limit thing. It isn't like, oh yeah, we've got this kind of blessing. He says, no, no we've been blessed in every way. This is all encompassing. This Godhead three in one, Father, Son, and Spirit, has been working, as we were going to go on to see, throughout history, throughout before time, before creation, out of love for our good. And in him working for our good, 
he's then caused us to then see that goodness through how he's blessed us. And in a moment, we're going to look at what that blessing looks like. So what we're going to find is that Paul talks about that blessing in terms of both the nature and content of it. But before you get there, there's a danger at this point. Is it can just feel like words. It can just feel like, okay, you're kind of just adding a bit to what Paul's saying. And that isn't what I'm wanting to do this morning. I also don't want us to hear things that for some of us will feel very familiar. I think, all right, yeah, yeah, okay. See, there's moments where we have to stop and look at the wonder of what God has done for us. And as we stop and look at the wonder of what God has done for us, that we could never do for ourselves, it captures us. It captures us so much so that we suddenly realize how much he is worthy of our praise. I've got one room in one art gallery that I like above every other room in every other art gallery in this nation. And it's in Tate Modern, and it's the Rothko room. Now, for those of you who've been to Tate Modern, you're thinking, oh, yeah, okay, I can think of that. For some of you thinking, are you trying to just look a bit arty, Adrian? No, I'm just trying to be honest. There's one room in one gallery that I really like. It's called the Rothko Room. Now, the thing with the Rothko Room is this. Rothko's paintings in that room were originally designed to be wall murals in a uh, restaurant cafe in the US. And they are enormous. They're taller than the uh, floor to ceiling here. And they're, they're incredibly long. And to fully appreciate the paintings, they've been hung in a way and lit in a way, so that if you go into that part of the gallery, there's no natural light. There's only the light that's been allowed in that part of the gallery. And when you go into that room, what you find is it suddenly feels a bit dingy. Because you go from the, all the walls of Tate Modern are all brilliant white, and there's lights beyond lights beyond lights, and you're kind of blaring, and there's some pieces of art, you think, that's amazing. Some of you think, what on earth? And you go through, and then you get to this one room, and you think, oh, this is a bit dingy. And what you find with any gallery is that you find there's two ways to view. One is that you go with the traffic, and you follow the route around, and then you get out the room. The other is there's these enormous benches that are just placed in the middle. There's no back to them. They're not that comfortable, but they are a place to sit. And in that moment, as you're in that gallery, or that part of the, yeah, as you're in that gallery, there becomes an invitation of how are you going to view the paintings in the room. And how you position yourself changes everything to how you view those paintings. So for many, they go through the room and they think, oh, I've seen some Rothkos. I own a Rothko print in home. And now I've seen one on the wall. And they traffic around the room, thinking, cool, my eyes feel funny. For others of us, not in an arrogant sense, what I've learned is you don't, you sit. And when you sit down, you have to allow yourself a moment for your eyes to become accustomed to the light. And it probably takes a few minutes. A few minutes, even not a few moments. It's a few minutes. And, and as you allow those few minutes to pass... And everyone's walking past you, you find yourself, and I find myself, which is why I love that room more than any other, stilling myself. And as I still myself, I suddenly forget all the other people passing by. I suddenly forget the want to get to somewhere else. I just think I'm just here in this moment to look at these paintings. And then as my eyes adjust, I then can look at these huge canvases. And you can only take kind of one canvas at a time. 
And as you take time, you just sit there, you begin to look, and you realize that the light level is such in order that you can see the depth of the colors that are on the print, can start to see into the picture, because it's not of something, it's abstract. But it draws you in. And why I'm telling you this isn't as an art lesson, isn't as a kind of invitation, let's all go to Tate Modern London, let me take you to the Rothko room so we can be those that sit down rather than rush through. But rather, this moment now is a sitting invitation moment. That when we contemplate the reason for our praise, it isn't a moment to rush through, thinking, oh yeah, yeah, seen it. It's a moment where we have to continuously daily, moment by moment, keep coming back and sitting and allowing our eyes to adjust from all the other things that can take their attention around us and allow our eyes to adjust to the realities of what God has done for us. Because as we do, it causes us to see things and enjoy something more than we'd ever see before. And that's what I us to just see now for a moment. Because you see, what Paul does in this verse is he explains and says, well, this reason for praise, everyone at this point in time is saying, what's the tractor? <laughs> I want to know what the tractor is, but it's a pretty cool tractor. There's, just so you know, as, as an aside, me drawing attention to that is just so you all know I'm okay with this. The fact that we're a community means that actually we are a community of lots of different ages. Therefore, that's okay for kids to be in here. And that's what I think is all right. Anyway, so I hope you're okay. I'm not distracted. Please, let's all keep this in. And at the end, look at the tractor because I reckon it's probably pretty cool. Um, <laughs> in it, though, our reason for praise. Paul kind of combines it and says, actually, our reason for praise is both in terms of the nature of the blessing that God has given us and the content of the blessing that God has given us. See, first he says it's about the nature. And the nature of this blessing that God has given us is like nothing else that we've ever experienced or know in this planet ever and could know. Because what he says about the nature of this blessing is he says two things. He says the nature of this blessing is heavenly and spiritual. That's what he says. He says, oh, this blessing, this good thing that you've known from God has a nature, and its nature is heavenly and spiritual. So I'm going to flip those around. What does it mean, spiritual? Well, we've already seen it. It means that it's of the spirit, that our realization, our experience, our knowledge of it comes through the Holy Spirit, who is God, who is seeking to allow us to know the reality within us of everything we're about to look at in terms of the content, that this is a spiritual blessing. It's also in respect to a spiritual blessing from God that isn't material or physical. It isn't something we just get, own. I know I've got another one of those. I've got a great bank balance. I've got a good car. It's, it's not that that's been spoken of here. It's a spiritual blessing that's about the very core of who we are. It's about a blessing that's changing the very nature of who we are rather than what we've got. Paul says this is, this is like a blessing like no other. It changes the very core identity of who we are that we could never do and nothing else could do for us. This is a blessing like no other. It's spiritual, but it's also heavenly. Knowing that this word heavenly and the heavenly realms is Paul only uses, is only used in the New Testament in the whole of the book of Ephesians. Five times it's mentioned. It's not mentioned anywhere else in Scripture. And Paul seems to use this as a moment to open our eyes to something 
that's a truth greater than maybe we could see just in our day-to-day lives. I don't know if you've ever been out in the country. I know we city folk look down on the country, but occasionally it has its uses. One of its uses is it doesn't have lots of street lights. You go out there at night, clear sky, no street lights, it's just natural light. You look up at the sky at night, clear of clouds. You look up and you suddenly see a few stars. At that point, you can see a few stars and think, whoa, that's a few stars I can see. You could then go back and think, now let's get back to civilization, where there are lights. But no, if you stay for a moment, and in that moment, in the country with no other lighting, you see a few stars, you then stay and ponder for a moment, you suddenly realize the sky starts to sparkle because you realize the sky is littered with stars. And you suddenly realize in that moment, there is way more out there than you ever imagined. Paul wants us to have a moment like that when he's talking about the heavenly realms. Because he's wanting to do is like cause us to suddenly see that the reality we know here and now is part of something that is way bigger than we could realize. But he doesn't do it in a sense where we'd suddenly look up and think, whoa, there's all those stars out there. I'm so scared. He actually does it in a moment of saying, look, I want to open your eyes to a bigger reality. But as I open your eyes to a bigger reality, I want you to have a confidence within that reality. And so when he talks about the heavenly realms, he does it in a number of different ways. He's doing it firstly to talk about that there is a realm that is a spiritual realm. That in the day and age we live in where we look and we think, well, we can prove that, therefore it must be right. Paul kind of messes with our minds and says, oh, no, no, there's another realm. There's a realm that is a spiritual realm. You've begun to see it because you believe in a God who's Father, Son, and Spirit. You start to see a few stars in the sky. So you've begun to realize that there is something beyond the physical of what you can see and touch. You've put your faith and trust in one who is spiritual. You've begun to realize yourself that you are made to be spiritual, to connect with your spirit with him, the core of who you are with the core of who he is. And he says, but I want you to understand that the stars that you've seen are just a few within a littered galaxy universe. And the moment he says, actually, that spiritual realm of what you've come to see in God, Father, Son, and Spirit is also part of a spiritual realm where there are other things going on. He says, actually, there's, there are forces that are for God and for good. And there are forces that are seeking to usurp God's authority and are seeking to harm anyone who's seeking to live in the good of what he's got. And so we'll find out towards the end of the book that he starts to point towards that and say, actually, we've got to have our eyes open to the fact that there's more to the earth going on than we'd see. There's a whole spiritual battle going on, not, as we're going to see in a moment, to fear, but rather to understand that there's one who is actively against God and therefore against anyone who centers their life on him and is seeking always to persuade people around ever centering their lives upon him. And that's the devil and all of his cronies. This is very real power. But the point is, if you then start to talk about that, it could then lead to fear and think, well, this is like a realm that I know nothing of. And suddenly there's some people against me who are spiritual powers. And we suddenly think, the only context I've got for that is horror films. Therefore, it's doom. Paul, understanding the 21st century, therefore kind of goes through this passage and like details what these heavenly realms look like in order we can have confidence as we see something new. So by the end of this chapter, he's going to say, oh, what we need to know about Jesus, he's been raised to the highest position in the heavenly realms, to have all authority over everything. 
Then we need to know by mid-chapter 2 that actually we now have also been raised with him into the highest place of authority. So we're placed with him. So we're not to fear what we're about to see and what we come into contact with as our eyes are open, but our understanding, are we with the one who has authority over all of it? Then get to see, actually, and God's using us to reveal something to that realm of all these spiritual things going on. That he's using us to reveal his wisdom by chapter 3. So that by the end of the book, we get to this understanding, oh, there is a battle going on. But it's not something we fear, but rather something we have faith and trust in Jesus who has all authority over all of it. So Paul wants to open our eyes at this point in time to understand something of the nature of the blessing. He does that both by understanding what there is a different realm, but also understanding the blessing that we have is not of this earth. See, Paul wants us to understand that we have been blessed by Jesus through his work on the cross, his life, death, and resurrection. And it's caused our lives to forever be changed. But that life that has been changed isn't just destined for this earth now. It's actually part of something that is to come, which actually when Jesus finally reveals the full extent of his authority, rule and reign, where we're told in Revelation 21, 22, he will come back and renew everything, heaven and earth. And it will all come under his rule and reign. And in that moment, there'll be no more pain, suffering. Everyone will be comforted. Everyone will see God as he is, as we see each other. We're told that that's a place and a moment where there will be no more darkness as light will only ever remain. No doors will be locked because everyone will be safe. All people groups will live in harmony because there will be total sense of peace. And so that's what we're to look for. And that's what's to happen. And actually what Jesus has afforded us, the blessing that we now know, is part of that moment. It's part of that time. That the blessing Jesus has given us is one that is in a world to come. It's not of this earth. It's when everything is new. Now, the problem with that is we can then think, well, does that mean then this is something to look forward to? No, it's an incredible blessing. It's actually the one we get to draw on now into the world that we're living in now. You see, Jesus told us to pray this prayer. He says, your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And we can tend to think that's quite abstract, whereas actually the reality of it is, is this. God, would you cause the reality of how you've defined me in the world as it will be, in the world that I'm living now? Jesus always wants to bring us understanding. He doesn't want us to live thinking, what does this look like? He wants us to cause to say, oh, oh, that that is to come is to be characterizing who I am now. But the heavenly realms isn't a word to say anything, oh, it's all up there and a bit nothing. It's actually something that brings us immense confidence. It suddenly means that I can live within the world that I'm in and can know the hope that it isn't always going to be like this. I can live in the world that I'm in knowing that I'm not defined by how others see me, but actually I'm defined by the fact that actually God has forever said that he will love me, has forever chosen me to be part of his family. That's what I get to be defined by. See, in it, this blessing that Paul's wanting to understand has a nature it's to allow us to see this is a nature far deeper than we can imagine. It's beyond our understanding, comprehension. It's beyond our doing. That none of us could say, okay, I'm going to give you something. I'm going to give you something, and it's spiritual, and it's not of this earth. Because to be honest, if I did say that, you'd then think, well, how? And it sounds a bit nuts. And yet God, who isn't physical, is spiritual, yet took on physical form, and now is spiritual and physical, just to blow our minds a bit more, that 
that he is that. Then he says, I want to give you something that no one could give you. Something that you yourselves could never get yourself. I'm going to give you something that blesses you spiritually. That is both for the now, but will last forever. And Paul then goes on to say, well, this blessing that has content, that has a nature, that is heavenly, is spiritual. It's also something that we can see and taste and know. It then goes on to say, well, it's not only to see the nature of it, it's also to see the content of it. So if you like, then you get to verses 4 to 14, and what that's doing is it's detailing the um, content of everything that we've been blessed by God with. And over the coming weeks, we are going to look at these things in detail, but it's important in this moment that we see that this isn't anything that we could have done ourselves. That actually this is an outworking of God in his origin. The Father called this into being. Jesus has made it happen. The Spirit is bringing the reality of it into our lives in order that we could know this blessing, in order that we could know a blessing that we are chosen, that we have done nothing to be chosen by God, that God chose us before the creation of the world. Nothing that we did to kind of say that we should be chosen. He just deemed it. Within Father, Son, and Spirit said, we're going to choose this people to be the object of our love, humanity. As we said, it's chosen to be loved. It wasn't chosen just to be known. It's chosen to be loved. This God who's always been loving, Father, Son, and Spirit, always loving in community. So actually, I want to now share that love with this new creation, humanity. So he chose us, chose you, chose me, before the creation of the world to be those that would be loved by him. So we wouldn't ever live thinking, what do I need to do now to earn his love? We'd actually be able to look back and look forward and say, actually, God, you've said that you chose me before time to be loved by you. And that's what defines me now. I'm blessed. I'm one who's now chosen to be loved. We're then those that are predestined. Big words we'll get to look at more next week. Predestined that God isn't reactive. It isn't that suddenly he found himself in this situation thinking, this is... Humanity that I created and wanted them to live within the bounds of my love and goodness. And yet they suddenly decided, oh no, we don't want to live in the bounds of your love and goodness. We'll go and do it ourselves. And suddenly at that point, think, oh no, what do we do? This is out of our control. We never saw this happen. We never saw this going to happen. And we're told that God predestined, planned that actually there would be a way back into his love, back into knowledge of community with him, back into his family. He's in control. He's not a reactive God. He's one who was planning you and I being chosen and a planned for our salvation before anything came into being. And at that point, these moments are when we sit and look at the picture, we think, but that blows my mind. I don't understand that. What about this? What well, some moments are there which allow us to think, I don't get this. This is beyond my thinking. It's stretching my brain. Because suddenly in those moments as our brain is stretched, we realize that God is bigger than we ever imagined and worthy of our praise. But he chose us, planned us in order that we'd be adopted that we'd be those that be part of this eternal family, Father, Son, and Spirit, continuously. That we'd be those that God has said, actually, I don't want you to stand on the edges, I want you drawn in. Drawn in and defined. 
by this loving relationship and family. See, these moments, we can think, well, how does this work? Well, we'll look at this a bit more. I'm going to steal illustrations from Gus next week. But there's this moment I've been thinking this through. What helps me understand is something of the privilege I've had of just having my own kids. And different ones of us be on different journeys in respect to this. But I know with my kids is this. I am an incredibly poor photocopy of what God had ordained and destined for fatherhood to look like. I can promise you that. Who he is as a father is way, 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 better than I will ever dream of being. And yet, somehow, he uses his weak, fragile molds like me to understand something. See, the deal is this. I've got three kids. Once we knew Lucy, my wife, was pregnant with each of them, I loved each of them. I knew I was going to love them. They were part of us. I, I loved them. That was the point of them coming to being. It wasn't that Lucy and I just thought, well, let's have some kids. They can care for us later. It was like an overflow of our love. <laughs> it was an overflow of our love. I was just thinking, we love each other. We want to share the love. There cannot be enough hearse in the world. So we... <laughs> We do that, and so when they each were born, I loved them as much as the moment they were conceived. And from that moment of them being born, I've continued to love them that much. Not because of anything they did. It wasn't because suddenly they came out and they could like juggle or speak or talk. I know every parent says that. Look what my kid can do, and you look and you think, doesn't look like anything, and they're like, man, this is amazing, this child prodigy. It wasn't because of that. It's just because I loved them. I knew I loved them. And there was nothing they were going to ever do to make me not love them. I just loved them. There are moments where suddenly they do things, and you think, why on earth have you done that? But it doesn't change the baseline that I do love them. And the reality is this, that each of them I will always love. Each of them I want really good things for. But they each have the freedom to choose not to live under the understanding of my love and my want for good things for them. And at this point in time, their freedom to do that is pretty low because they have to live in my house. But at some point, they don't have to. Different ones of them will be looking with hope at that point. But at some point, I've told them, maximum 18, they will need to look to go somewhere else. <laughs> they can live longer if they want to in our house, but I think it'd be good by 18 to be looking somewhere else. Um, there's, in that moment... As they go to define themselves, it could be that any single one of them could just say, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. At that moment, it still doesn't change the fact that I love them. At that moment, it doesn't change the fact that I've always loved them. But in that moment, they can choose and say, I don't, I don't want to live in that. If at some point within their life, that might take 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, it could be on my dying bed, they suddenly come back to me and say, I know I didn't want to live within your love, but now I say I want to. At that point, I'm not going to say, oh, well, too late. I'm not going to say, oh, well, I guess I'll have you back. No, at that moment, I'm going to say, do you know what? Before you were born, I loved you. And I still love you the same with the same love. I want you to know that I still choose you. I have planned to always love you. And the fact that you're now taking yourself back into the knowledge of this causes you to understand that I still love you. The love hasn't changed. And if you like, that allows me, with the frailty of my thinking, to start to understand something of who God is, who is a perfect father, who's loved each of us. 
and yet out of his love enabled us to have freedom. Jesus points to it. He points to it through the parable of the, the kind of prodigal son who rejects his father and yet at the end comes back to his father. And we find that the father's love is still consistent. We find it from the beginning to the end of the book. We find at the very beginning of the book that God ordained that humanity would live with him at the center with his love there. And yet he plants a tree in the garden that they're to live in and say, oh, but don't touch that because that will harm you. It gives them freedom knowing that they will touch it. But knowing something much better will be coming out of it. See, when we fully appreciate that God is a loving father who chose us before the creation of the world, planned us to be his children, to live characterized by his love, it suddenly takes our breath away to think, I'm loved like that? I'm loved eternally. Which will cause us when we get there for Paul to get to points of saying, man, grasp how high and wide and deep and long is the love of Christ. Why? Because it's way vast. Have we settled for something so small when we need to look at the painting for much longer and realize the depth of it? But more than that, it's not only we're chosen, adopted, and predestined, it's also we're redeemed. That God, in his understanding, knew that would be those that would center our lives around ourselves rather than him. And as a result of that, it'd have consequences. Consequences of death rather than life. And so what he does is says, oh, through Jesus, we're redeemed. We're taken out of death and the fear of death and the restlessness of death that can cause people to say, I, I can't even deal with that. I just want to know when it's going to happen. Take away from there. Say, oh, no, I'm going to cause you to live totally differently, to be redeemed from the fear of death, to be redeemed from the restlessness of death, to be redeemed thinking death is it. The suddenly understanding that Jesus was a model that you will get to know now, that you're redeemed into his resurrected life. So death isn't something to fear. Death isn't something to be restless about. It's rather that you can rest in the knowledge that you now live in a life that is both to be enjoyed now, but is part of something that is to come, that will be forever. That we get to live forgiven. That we get to know that there is nothing that God doesn't say it's okay. That we get to live knowing that we are eternally forever accepted by him. We get to know that we're not only eternally accepted by him, we get to live free of shame and guilt. It isn't we get to live with a bad saying forgiven and yet inwardly we punish ourselves or whip ourselves saying, oh, but if you only knew. No, so we live completely guilt free. Because one day we will live completely guilt free. One day Jesus will see us and we'll be like he is. And we'll look at each other and think, man, this is brilliance of light, of purity. And yet we get to draw on what is into the now and say, but that's how I get to live now. Not defined by my past mistakes, but defined by how God sees me. And we get to live with hope. That hope of understanding that one day Jesus will bring everything under his control. And everything will be made new. And we get to then both point to it and bring into being things that are part of where everything gets made new now. That's the blessing. That's the blessing that Paul wants us to get hold of, that we have been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing that has changed who we are forever. That allows us to get to this point and think, well, if that is how we've been blessed, then surely it isn't that we then curl in ourselves and think, curve in on ourselves and think, well, this is amazing that I've got this, but rather that we cause us to come out and say, God, it is incredible what you have done for me. 
because I couldn't do any of this. And yet you have done this for me, which in turn causes me to realize that you above all are the object of my praise. You above all are the one that is good beyond good. I can look at so many things that look good, but they're not good compared to who you are. It then causes me to be one who says, I am crafted for praise. And so in being crafted for praise, I can't help but tell him how much I want to praise him. I can't help but thank him for how much I want to praise him. I can't help but do it both through my actions. I want to use my body to do it. I want to use my voice to praise him. I also want to share it with others because I want others to understand how good he is. And in that, it then changes not only in a moment how we worship. I'm saying actually whatever I've said personally that has made any difference, that ultimately we allow God to change us and saying, God, you are incredible. I want to come now in this moment and praise you with everything I've got because I've realized I've got everything from you. That it isn't just for a Sunday morning. It isn't just that we say, oh, yeah, this is the moment where we're crafted to worship, crafted to praise. Actually, it's a daily thing, a daily rhythm. Where actually from the moment I wake, I'm reminding myself, God, I praise you because this is what you've done for me. And I speak it into myself. I physically do do that. I'd literally just say, I usually start, Jesus kind of gave us his prayer, which is quite incredible. Our Father who art in heaven, Father, I come before you. Praise, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. God, I thank you that I am walking example of your kingdom on earth. I'm one that you chose predestined to live in your love. I'm one that you have caused to be part of your family. I'm one that is forever forgiven. Therefore, I choose in this moment to live free of things that kind of I struggle with, things I've got wrong, and I live and receive your forgiveness and don't live in the guilt and shame of it. I also choose in this moment to forgive those who've kind of done wrong to me because just as you've forgiven me, I want to forgive them. I don't want to live understanding that I'm not only forgiven, I get to know hope. And therefore, Jesus, I pray in this day, give me everything I need, physically, spiritually. I look to you and say, give me everything and cause me to reveal who you are wherever I go because it's all yours. You and you alone are worthy of praise because thine is the glory forever and ever. Amen. See, there's these moments where you suddenly think, maybe God orchestrates the Bible. Maybe God knows what he's doing when he says, and says, hey, there's this prayer that's a model. And they suddenly get to this point and a letter written to the Ephesians. And you get to a 21st century in a room in Birmingham, you suddenly realize it all connects. In order that we come and say, God, you and you alone are worthy of praise. In order that you and I can live day-to-day life saying, you and you alone are worthy of praise. So the band are going to come up now. I also just give a moment, some moments to stand and say, there are so many things that we could give our time and attention to. And yet in this moment, we want to say, God, we give it to you to praise you. So should we stand? Just where we are, just, I just encourage, let's just close our eyes. And while we close our eyes, what I want us to do is just take a moment to reflect, to speak to ourselves, our inner beings, and say, regardless of what's going on in life at the moment, 
God, what is it I recognize in you that is worthy of my praise? And in that, as we do that, it's then saying, God, out of this place, I'm now going to use this moment to tell you and show you how I want to praise you.